I'm Reverend Harry Bridge. And I'm Dr. Scott Mitchell, and this is the Dharma Realm Podcast. And we're coming to you from the Kodo of the Jodo Shinshu Center in Berkeley, California. This is the Dharma Realm Podcast for February 18th, 2011. And today we continue our discussion of the 3,000 worlds in one thought moment. Okay, so in our last episode, we were sort of ending on this conversation about your uh, your cat um, and questions of death and uh, and some interesting philosophy. I think that the theme of these episodes has to do with... Uh, sort of uh, philosophical issues in Buddhism, starting with in the last episode with this idea of uh, the 3,000 worlds in one thought moment or 3,000 things in one thought moment. Um, but one of the things that we were talking about was um, you were sort of talking about these sort of practical issues of how to deal with your, your cats passing away and also these sort of huge, large, heavy philosophical issues. And I think that this is sort of – this is this is – fun for me <laughs> um, because I think it's, you know, I, I've been doing philosophy for a long time and I love sort of having abstract philosophical conversations um, and thinking about abstract theory and all of these things. But at some point in time, I feel like we need to bring it down to a concrete issue. Mm. Um, and there's always, it seems to me like a disconnect between these abstract sort of ideas and real world problems. You know, it's one thing to sort of have an abstract conversation about the Pure Land and what the Pretty Land really is and the mechanism by which one gets reborn there and do we understand it literally or figuratively or metaphorically or symbolically or psychologically. And then it's another thing to be sort of faced with an actual experience of losing someone that you love um, and how you sort of deal with those sort of more immediate emotional issues and, and, and feelings and, and thoughts that arise. Um, so this is like the best kind of philosophy to me. It's mm -hmm. the kind that sort of brings these two things together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, now, uh, part of the inspiration for these episodes has to do with a book that Harry found Yeah, that has a really difficult title. Go for it. Right. Um, the title is? The title is <laughs> Evil and or as Good by Brooke Zipporin. Uh, and in, in full disclosure, neither Harry nor I have read the entire book. Right. So... I found it. Keep that in mind. Yeah. <laughs> We're not doing like an in-depth uh, discussion of the book, but just right. kind of jumping off from some of the ideas that he presents. Yeah. And the book has a lot to do with this idea of the 3,000 things in one thought moment. It has yeah. a lot to do with uh, Buddhist philosophy. Um, and uh, there European was... European philosophy, too. European philosophy. And there was some... Uh, some controversial things that were said in some reviews, if right. I understand it correctly, right. that tried to use some of these ideas and apply them to another real-world situation that had specifically to do with the Holocaust, um, which is a difficult thing to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a good sort of intro to what the direction we're headed in, perhaps? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so perhaps you can say more about the book since you're more familiar with it than I am? Yeah, because it was in the first... I don't know why I got interested in this, but um, I've always been interested in reincarnation. Uh, just to recap a little bit of what we talked about last time, we normally think of it as the six realms, but there's a picture in a one book on um, uh, the wheel of rebirth, and uh, it's a woodblock cut from Japan, and it shows ten worlds with the six realms plus the arhats, prachika buddhas, bodhisattvas, and buddhas. Uh, and then it's talking about those worlds 
in the context of Ichinen Sanzen, the 3,000 worlds in a single thought moment. And it's, it's kind of this, uh, it seems to be this radical interdependence, interpenetration kind of doctrine that uh, all the different realms of rebirth are all in every single thought moment, are always happening in every single instant. Uh, and so uh, being kind of fascinated with that, uh, I uh, went out looking for uh, more information about this idea of the 3,000 worlds in a single thought moment and was kind of surprised how difficult it was to find stuff. Uh, but I was able to find a few things, and one is in this book, uh, Evil and or As Good. And uh, we should tell you the, the subtitle, because uh, that is even... Oh, the subtitle helps. The, really yeah, 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 it, it really helps. It, it, it clarifies things a lot. <laughs> Evil and slash or slash as the good, sorry. Omnicentrism, intersubjectivity, and value paradox in Tiantai Buddhist thought. See, that's very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> now, from what I understand, uh, a lot of this uh, um, has to do with, uh, like we were talking about last time, pushing sort uh, some some uh, some I wouldn't say basic, but some uh, well-known Buddhist ideas and philosophical principles to their sort of logical limit, um, and. In Chantai philosophy, taking these ideas of uh, of uh, non duality or holism and taking them to their extreme logical extreme of saying that, you know, the evil is completely the same as good or and or as the good and so on. Um, and these ideas have implications on Buddhist ethics, which is also what uh, the book deals with. Mm-hmm. You were saying, um, yeah, Jur Lee is someone um, you may have heard of Jur E. Uh, who was um, viewed as the founder of the Chentai school. Uh, and so this is talking about someone from four or 500 years later who's looking back to Juri and a lot of the, um, his doctrines, uh, but pushing them to this extreme uh, during the Sung period uh, of, of Chinese Buddhism. Uh, and I think for, for Zipporin, the author of this book, um, he's looking at, I was looking more for the, the Buddhist studies. I wanted the Buddhist <laughs> philosophy kind of stuff. But he takes it beyond that and looks at it in terms of philosophy as well and ethics. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times I think we think of philosophy as just this kind of mental gymnastics. Uh, but I think that um, philosophy often, the, the philosophy at its best uh, is ethical and trying to understand uh, ethics and ethical behavior and you know how we should live, how we should act. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he's looking at this very interesting doctrine of uh, omnicentrism or what is it, <laughs> omnicentric holism and intersubjectivity yeah. and radical yeah. interpenetration. Yeah. Um, I think one interesting thing is uh, an early tension in Buddhism is the tension between samsara and nirvana. Right. Uh, samsara being the six realms and reincarnation and uh, the three poisons. We should get away from that. We should try and escape that. And the impurities and, and the glaciers and yeah. all of the other, all the nasty things about this world. That keep us deluded yeah. and keep us in ignorance and keep us suffering. Right. And that somehow we want to escape that and attain nirvana and uh, not have to uh, exist in that anymore. And so it, it kind of sets up a dichotomy. It says that samsara is, nirvana is something other than samsara. It's different than samsara. Right. It's a basic tension of Buddhism that goes back to the very beginning yeah. where you have these two radically different polar opposites in a way. Um, and the question is how can they have any relationship to one another whatsoever, not only in 
metaphysical or ontological sense, but in a, a causal sense, meaning how is it that I, somebody of samsara who was filled with kleshas and the delusions and, and the three poisons and suffering and so on and so forth, how is it that I can somehow overcome that, mm-hmm. transcend all of that? Uh, escape all of that or clean myself up enough in order to enter into some completely different state of being, i.e. nirvana. And that's a a sort of central tension in Mm -hmm. Buddhism. And a lot of the development of Buddhism in the centuries uh, and millennia after Shakyamuni Buddha, uh, I think that tension in a way drives a lot of Buddhist thought and institutional development and doctrinal development, practice development. Uh, One example being... Madhyamaka, this kind of Mahayana uh, notion that no, samsara isn't different than nirvana. Samsara is nirvana. Nirvana is samsara. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. We find that in the Heart Sutra. Uh, we find it in Shinran. Uh, and it's a, a radical rethink of that basic tension between samsara and nirvana. Yeah. And, and the, the parts of the book that I have read that, I, that, that jumped out at me, one of them had to do with this idea that I see a lot where people will talk about this dualism and say, oh, well, samsara and nirvana are the same side of the, or different sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. And that metaphor is very helpful, I think, mm-hmm. for a lot of people to think of nirvana and samsara as being two different sides of the same coin because then you can see how they're different, but they're part of the same thing. And this is part of... Uh, a basic sort of holism that we can talk about in philosophy. Um, but the Tiantai stuff seems to take that even further and say, no, they're not the two different sides of the same coin. That's all the same thing. Mm-hmm. There is no duality at all. Um, so this is the um, omnicentric holism, right? I think maybe we're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're pushing the boundaries of our knowledge right now. So, so bear with us folks. <laughs> but, but it's again, that sort of pushing the boundaries of, of the sort of, uh, taking these ideas to their logical extreme, if there is no dualism, then there can't be two sides of the same coin because two sides is a dualism, right? right, right, right. Um, so somehow the good and the evil are completely infused into one thing. This is where the title of the book comes in, the the evil and or of the good. And or as. And or as, right, right. So. That's a good name for a song or a band, <laughs> and or as. <laughs> Ah, awesome. This is our new uh, Buddhist rock band. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of this stuff sounds tantric to me, mm-hmm. and it just that just occurred to me, um, you know, that all things are of one taste. Uh, the passions are not other than enlightenment. The passions are enlightenment. The defilements are Yeah, but, but, um, but I think ta- a lot of tantrism also has a, a language of uh, transformation. Mm-hmm of transforming the passions into their opposite, of transforming the kleshas into, uh, which of, you know, takes us right back to Shinran, right? Transforming, what's that, uh, Tayuno's book, Bit, Bits of Rubble into Gold or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I know transformation to me implies that there's difference or, or a change and a duality still. I don't know, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. going off on the, let's push it to its extreme. <laughs> but um, anyway. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I don't, I'm not enough of an expert on Tantra to uh, refute that. I think that there are some forms of Tantra that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. I'm go not, beyond... I'm not a, as much of an expert to defend that idea. Right, right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, forget I said anything about Tantra. <laughs> Actually, I will give an aside. Uh, I have a 
quote unquote Buddha image, a, a Buddhist image at home, and it's a tanka um, that I picked up in Northampton at this little Tibetan store uh, when I go, used to go visit um, Dr. Tai Uno, and uh, it's it's like a, a pedestal vase kind of thing, and on it are uh, a lute, um, a mirror, um, some fruit or food. Uh, these five things and so I had to do research to find out what it was but it's the lute is the ear organ symbolizes sound uh, the mirror I think symbolizes sight the fruit symbolizes um, taste or the mouth and so it's the five sense organs mm-hmm. the objects of the five sense organs as the Buddha image huh I mean that's the image the Buddha image in a way the the object of worship Right, so I don't know how it's used. I don't know what rituals it's used in, uh, but it would that would imply to me that there is no separation. Yeah, yeah they are yeah. not different. Right, the, right. The, the normally the objects of the sense organs and the sense organs themselves are viewed as diluted. Right, um, but this is saying no. The the things that we normally view as samsara and diluted are the object of worship. So yeah, I mean, I, I mean, from what I know about tanka and 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 then visualization practices, the idea of those images is to visualize yourself as the deity in the image. Um, so to visualize yourself as, in this case, your own sense organs, um, as the Buddha wow. is was is sort of yeah. That's that's, that's kind of mind blowing too. That's the mind blowing radical omniscient holism. What is this omniscient part though? Let's get back to that. Omniscient. It's not omniscient. Omnicentric. Omnicentric. Sorry. Omnicentric. That implies to me a center implies uh, non-center, right. right? That the center is the center of all these other things that are not part of the center. My guess, and again, I don't have the book in front of me, uh, would be omnicentric would be that there's a center here, but this center is all other things are in that center, and there are other centers, and those are centers for everything. So there isn't only one center. Basically, all things are the center. Uh, so uh, kind of this... Radical interpenetration again, radical interdependence, uh, 3,000 things in one thought moment. That, um, and I, I think we were, we were looking at one of the reviews and like, one truth holds all truths. Yeah. And at the, another different truth holds all truths. So it's not that there are these discrete things, discrete truths, discrete centers. In one sense, they're discrete, but in another sense, they are all things. They in- include all things in all these different places. So it's, um, again, it's, it's our, what we kind of talked about before, the radical uh, Mahayana kind of view of interdependence or um, interconnectedness. So, so this idea that there's uh, taking these, these ideas of the, the radical interpenetration and, and uh, what you were just saying about this, this one truth is totally the center of this other truth and, and, and whatnot. Um, these sort of large uh, abstract philosophical ideas have uh, implications on ethics, and that's certainly one of the things that Sapporo is doing in his book. And I think that it's 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 clear that once you start thinking about ethics, some problems arise because the way that we normally think about ethics is we really want there to be, you know, right behavior or good behavior and bad behavior, you know, good, good and, and evil. evil, right? <laughs> but from this point of view, there is no good and evil. There's everything is uh, omniscient. Uh, not omniscient, omnicentric wholeness, holisticness, something. So it's not only that one truth holds all truths, but that within good, 
there's also evil. Right, right. And so, so part of the what happened with this book is that there's been some reviews, some critical reviews of it, um, and possibly controversial uh, responses to it. Um, one of them has to do with how we can apply these ideas to obvious, quote-unquote, evils, quote-unquote, like the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want to debate the Holocaust. Right. That's right, right. clearly wrong. Um, but it's also an interesting, uh, it's an interesting thing to do when we, when we come into contact with these kinds of philosophies that raise you know, profound questions about applied ethics. Um, it's, it can be helpful to think about actual examples where you know, we really want this particular historical event to be uncategorically wrong, mm-hmm. and yet here's this philosophical system that would seem to suggest otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what do we do with that? How do we deal with that sort of uh, seemingly uncomfortable-making sort of thought, <laughs> for lack of a better more clear way of expressing that. You go. <laughs> well, because, I mean, I was thinking about, let's break down the title of the book. Mm-hmm. So I think you can read it, Evil and Good. Right. right. So that recognizes right. there is evil and there is good. Then you can say evil or good. Right. So that would be kind of, there. this might be evil or it might be good. But then the third one is the kicker. Yeah. Evil yeah. as good. Yeah. As the good. Yeah. As the good. Yeah. Right. It's not even just good. It's the good. It's got the <laughs> capital T probably on there. On the the. <laughs> right? That that they're not separate. Yeah. That the good, the pure goodness contains evil. Evil is not different than good. Right? And I think when you read it in a Buddhist, East Asian historical context, it's kind of like, wow, that's kind of kooky, but okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then um, someone can come along, and someone did come along and wrote there are these reviews, and you can go online. It's kind of hard to track it down if you don't have access to the... Some of the journals are by subscription only, uh, so be aware of that. But um, also, be just we want to let you know about this kind of interesting yeah, controversy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so then what about the Holocaust? Holocaust. Yeah. How can we view that as good? Right. How could we possibly view that as good? Um, and this is, you know, I, that that's not, uh, it's it's not, that's been done before. I mean, using the Holocaust, as you were saying before we were recording, as like a straw man argument about ethics, and it happens a lot. I've, I've, I've seen this in other religious contexts, too, mm-hmm. where they say, well, you know, how do you deal with evil and from a Christian point of view, too, if, if God is, is completely good and, and benevolent, then why did God let the Holocaust happen? These kinds of issues come up. Um, and they're important questions. They're absolutely important questions. Um, and I think it can be tricky because, as you were saying, uh, the Chantai Buddhist philosophers who came up with these ideas were writing, you know, thousands of years almost before these modern concerns. And so they're, they're dealing with completely different sort of real-world examples. Um, so it's hard to, you know, apply this philosophy to this real-world example. Mm-hmm. But I think it can be really helpful to think about real-world examples um, when dealing with abstract philosophy. Like, we mm-hmm. started this episode and, and sort of talking about abstract philosophy, but, you know, what does that have to do with a real-world, real-life example? And um, it seems all too easy to sort of go to the extreme of the Holocaust, which is an obviously bad thing, but it's it's it might not be as useful as sort of uh, uh, or uh, practical in a, in a sort of personal way in our own lives. Mm-hmm. I think one way that um, 
you could bounce this back to away from the Holocaust, but to Buddhism is like the work that Brian Victoria has done on like Zen at War, right, right, and right, right. looking at the Buddhist Japanese Buddhist institutions and their collusion with the government and their involvement with uh, the wartime atrocities uh, and wartime activities of Imperial Japan uh, leading up to World War II. Yeah, um, and so. No, these are important questions. It's not. We're not saying that we just want to sweep it under the rug or something or, or ignore that. Um, it's a problem in Buddhism. See this, and the, another thing that we like, to, Scott and I like to rant about, <laughs> is how we hate it when Buddhism is just portrayed as this perfect, peaceful religion where everyone, everyone Buddhist is perfect. Right. Oh, you're Buddhist. Um, how could you get angry? You don't get angry, right? You must be so calm. Right, this this kind of romantic view, romanticized view of Buddhism as you know all that is good and right in the world. Yeah, and as gratifying as that may seem to be, um, it's actually really frustrating. I think because it's unrealistic. Yeah. it has no basis in reality whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, no, there is some. I sure, like sure. Buddhism. Yeah, I think yeah, Buddhism yeah. is I, a great religion. And, and, and that's the thing. I think you can use Buddhism for whatever purposes you want, and you could certainly use Buddhism in order to perpetuate or uh, uh, support a certain ethos of peace and happiness and, and oneness, and, and that's all great and compassion, and these are wonderful things, and we should absolutely do that um, you know, in order to engender a better, more harmonious world. But to do that and not be attentive to the fact that there are problems in the philosophy and then there are historical events, historical realities, historical of what realities has been done. <laughs> um, is just to be naive and to, uh, you know, that, that, that old cliche of those who are, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Um, it's important to be attentive to the historical reality of Buddhist history, lest we make the same mistakes other people have. Um, so that's, that's the, the sort of underlying you know, motivation for my own rants. <laughs> and there are many. <laughs> just, just, just one or two, I promise. Um, but, 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 you know, and, and certainly these kinds of philosophies that say that the good, uh, that evil is the good, um, that's, that's a pretty big philosophical statement. Yeah. What does that mean? How yeah. do we apply that then to moments in our lives that are really, really difficult and hard to understand and that we're resistant to accepting as necessarily good? Um, we started the episode off talking about death. That's a perfect example. You know, if, if I lose somebody that I love, I have a really hard time understanding that as the good. Hmm. That does not make, that doesn't compute in my brain, right? My, I want to see that as bad because I've lost something mm -hmm. and that is painful. Mm -hmm. so how do I understand that as the good? That's mm -hmm. very, very challenging. Mm -hmm. And to just sort of brush over that as Buddhism is about peace and love is like, oh, come on, that's not that helpful. Yeah. <laughs> Let's really like get in there and figure out what this is stuff about. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> um, there was that book, something about Buddhism and warfare or something. That oh, the, the more recent one? Yeah, Yeah, really recent one. There's a picture of a young monk with a toy gun. Yeah. Right. Very, very controversial. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. People hated that book. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember one of the comments. I mean, you can't trust comments on, on the web too much, but one person said... Buddhism has nothing to do with violence or, or, or war. You, you don't understand Buddhism. Whoever wrote this book doesn't get it. Yeah. It's like, no, the person writing the comment doesn't get it. Let's look at history. Um, that There is historically involvement between Buddhism and war. And uh, Buddhism for the state, uh, warrior monks, 
uh, not only in Japan in you know medieval times, but Korea had warrior monks too. Um, yeah, you know, and, and the, I think a lot of people will look at that and, and and say, well, that's not real Buddhism, right? And that that is another one we hate. <laughs> <laughs> but I always I always think of um, there's in in the you know what is often considered to be the most authoritative aspect of the Buddhist canon, the Pali canon, the you know Theravada sort of this is closest to what the Buddha really taught. Um, if if you take that as authoritative, um, and there are images in the Pali canon of the Buddha being flanked on his left and right by bodyguards mm-hmm. who have in their hands vajras, mm-hmm. right? Now, vajras in, in Tibetan tantric Buddhism are sometimes these symbolic uh, lightning bolts sort of, you know, things. But in the Pali Canada, it's pretty, it pretty much sounds like they're holding clubs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even without getting to the historical stuff, just looking at textually, you can see, you know, the Buddha had bodyguards. Why would he have bodyguards, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Unless he was feeling threatened, which means that there's some sort of, you know, possible violence going on in there. How do we deal with that? How do we, you know, how do we uh, understand that? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's lots, there's a whole field that is devoted to this particular um, line of reasoning. Um, how do we get off on this topic? Well, it goes back to this issue of evil as good. Right. And the ethical implications of that. And then how do we under, I don't know, how do we understand that? Um, I think that Buddhism, at its best, is critical, and it's um, that for myself as a Buddhist, one way of manifesting that of being Buddhist is to be critical of myself, uh, to be critical of my own views, be critical of my own actions. And again, that doesn't mean to criticize. I'm bad, right? But to be critical, to think about it, to to be honest, and maybe step back and yeah. and not just assume that I'm right. Uh, and so I would hope that evil as good, or evil as the good, someone holding that view would also uh, be critical about that and not just indulge in uh, harmful acts against others. Right. Right. And I don't think that that's what's being suggested here either. Uh, it's really, really a complex issue. Uh, but uh, I think that that critical side really needs to be held on, not held on to, but, but kept in mind. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, part of the the sort of self-criticism has to do with being aware of our own subjectivity. Yeah, very nice. Um, That we, I have this particular perspective on the world, and it's very, very easy for me to believe that all of my opinions are right. You know, that I am the right one. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it's, I'm I'm constantly proved that I'm not the right one. Um, And sometimes when I'm challenged by an external force, it raises the question in me of, well, is anybody right in this particular situation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Is there one absolute right way to look at this particular issue? And that's part of being uh, being critical as well, as to be acknowledging the subjectivity-ness of, if I can make up a word, of perspective. Mm -hmm. And another thing I think maybe is to realize that, yes, and so I'm going to go Shinshu again um, and say, yes, from the ultimate point of view, all things are one. All, you know, evil is good. It's all, but in a way, by then it's already dissolved. Yeah. It's, it's not stuck on the samsaric plane. It's from the enlightened perspective. Uh, and so, yeah, and I can I understand am taking that out of it. Then, yeah. right? um, and so... 
I think in Shinran, it's, this whole issue of non-dualism is complex in Buddhism as well. Um, I think that there is Buddhism that is um, uh, uh, dualistic, and there's Buddhism that transcends that and is non-dualistic. And I think that Shinran has a little bit of both. And Shinran uh, recognizes that uh, from the Buddha's point of view, yeah, it's all embraced, it's all one, it's all empty, it's all light, right? Uh, later commentators, later interpreters say, you know, the, the foolish being and Buddha are one. Putsubong Ittai, they're of one substance. Right? Uh, but I think Shinran also maintains somewhat of a, a dualistic view as well and recognizes I'm not Buddha. <laughs> right. I think that's where things can get dangerous if you start to think, yeah, I'm Buddha. Yeah. Evil yeah, yeah. is good. I can control all these people and because I'm Buddha, it's okay. Right, and you could become a cult leader with that kind of attitude, right? And yeah. cult leaders often uh, take advantage of people, I think, and do things that I think are wrong. Uh, I think that Shinran, my part of Shinran's view and part of being a Shinshu Buddhist is to kind of follow the model of Shinran is to to not fall for that and to recognize my limitedness, recognize my limited perspective, recognize my subjectivity. Uh, and to, rec- to try and be aware that, yeah, there's not only my point of view, but also to be aware that, but I'm pretty much stuck in my point of view yeah. most of the time. Right? Uh, and, uh, and the inability that we have to know other people's points of view or mm-hmm. the difficulty that mm-hmm. it can have. Uh, you know, this, this, this conversation always leads me to think about compassion and empathy mm-hmm. um, to sort of bring it back to some of the ethics that we're talking about. Um, I think we have a hard time seeing other people's points of view, and I think we absolutely need to in order to empathize with them and therefore Mm -hmm. feel compassion for them. Mm -hmm. Um, But we get so stuck in our own point of view that we can't identify with them, and then they just become other, and we don't care about them. Mm -hmm. Um, Another sort of fundamental tension I I find Mm -hmm. in Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, maybe to wrap up, I could mention a couple of things that I talked about on New Year's Eve. Uh, this past uh, New Year's Eve. Um, And I was talking a little bit about this 3,000 worlds in one thought moment. And one of the things, kind of like what we just said, uh, I see the world the way I think it is. I think that's the way it is. Uh, But actually, there's so much more. My viewpoint is limited. My viewpoint uh, uh, assumes certain things. My viewpoint is colored by my psychological makeup, my, my circumstances, my karma, right? And so I see things and I think, oh, that's a bad person, or oh, this is a cat, or oh, you know, make these assumptions. Uh, but this 3,000 worlds in one thought moment is kind of saying maybe there's more, right? What you think is the way things are is only one tiny slice of the real picture of the way things really are. Uh, and so... Maybe uh, this doctrine of uh, 3,000 things in a single thought moment uh, would uh, inspire us or give us some tools uh, to try and take a step back from that uh, limited perspective that I assume is true and right uh, and to see things from another perspective and see things a little bit differently. And um, another aspect of that is uh, to take what we think is bad and this difficult Mm-hmm. Right, but like for example, death and loss, right? And what we normally our judgmental mode is to think that's bad. I don't like this. How can this be good at all? 
this is maybe a more real life evil as good or bad as yeah, good, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it's bad, but maybe I can see it from another perspective. Maybe I can begin to see things. It's not saying it's good. Oh, it's a great thing. Right. But the, what can I learn from this? What is this teaching me? Uh, it's te- maybe it's teaching me something um, about the ultimate uh, that normally I'm not able to uh, come into contact with or that I'm not normally uh, inspired or motivated to pursue. Thank you.